Beloved, will you please join with me in a word of prayer? Please bow your heads now. Father, we come before your throne of grace and we prepare our hearts to feast upon your word. Lord, I pray, Lord, that for anyone sitting in here this morning, that by your sovereign design, you have brought here who's hurting, who's hurting emotionally, who's hurting physically. Father, I pray that your words, not our words, not my words, but your word, would be a bomb to their soul. Uplift them, provide for them, for those who are sick. Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, will you heal them. Lord, heal them as a testimony of your power, mercy, and grace, so that a story and stories of redemption and renewal would be proclaimed. Father, we want to pray for marriages want to pray for marriages that are hurting and broken, that you would bring reconciliation as an illustration and testimony of the gospel. Father, we want to pray for uh, those who are struggling in work or looking for work. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would provide for them, once again, as a means of providing a way to steward your goodness and your gifts for the gospel. Father, we want, to, we want to pray, Lord, for anyone in here this morning who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray, Lord, that they would see in your Son the answer, not just to life, Lord, but ultimately, Lord, for the, for the satisfaction and joy of their souls. And so, Lord, lastly, we want to pray for our world. We see that there is so much darkness in our world. Uh, last week, we were not sure if we would be on the brink of war. We see division in our nation. We see, Lord, evil. Uh, yet we see, Lord, a lot of hope. So, Father, as we enter into this new year and there's a lot of changes going on and, and a world of unrest and uncertainty, we pray, Lord, that we would find certainty in your word. So help us to go to that sacred book now. Help us, Lord, as we come before your sacred desk. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are continuing our series this morning through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the recent weeks, we've seen Jesus, week after week, passage after passage in this great sermon, give a few hard teachings. And what Jesus has been doing is he's been exposing the legalistic system of the Jewish leaders. It was a system that was abused. It was a system that was used by the Jewish leaders to get their own way. And it was a perversion of the law of the Lord. And by extension, each sermon speaks to us in a very convicting way if we would allow our hearts to come in tenderness before His Word and the Scriptures. It exposes our motives. It exposes our intentions. It places our hearts under the divine light. And so this morning, the title of our time together is Our Words, His Word. Our Words and His Word. And so when we tell someone, you have my word, I give you my word, we are making, in a sense, a type of promise, a type of vow. What we're saying, in essence, is that you can trust me. I give you my word, you have my word. And essentially, our word should be sufficient if our character is trustworthy. But because our, our world is often undergirded by deceit, selfishness, 
and lies, we have such things as vows, contracts, commitments, oaths. Uh, we have different things. We have to swear upon the Bible. We have to be sworn into office. Why do we have these things? We have these things because man is not trustworthy. That is a truth. That is a reality. We are fallible. Even our good intentions, our well-intentioned words, we fall short because we are unable to deliver at times. And what we're going to see today is that, yes, we've all said things that we've regret, that we've regretted. We say things that we regret, but we must remember the hope that we have redemption in a great Redeemer whose word is trustworthy, whose word never fails us even when we fail Him. We've all been dishonest at times. But this morning, I want you to see that though we are, we've been dishonest, that we are honest to profess our sin and confess our sin that we have a Savior and a Lord who receives us. And so as Christ followers, our words, to the best of our ability, must be sincere and trustworthy. And where we fall short, we have an author and perfecter of our faith that takes our imperfect words and perfects it through the gospel. So if you will, please take God's word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 right now. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. It's not too many verses, so allow me to read this into the heart streams of your listening ears. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Jesus, once again, refers to the law of the Lord, or some interpretation of the Old Testament teaching. And in verse 33, he begins, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So point number one this morning is Jesus exposes the duplicity of insincere vows. Jesus exposes the duplicity of insincere vows. And you have seen each week that that's what Jesus is doing. He's exposing. He's exposing falsehood. He's exposing hypocrisy. He's calling out the religious leaders and many who followed them. Verse 33, again, you've heard it said. What is Jesus referring to? Well, there are several places in the Old Testament that Jesus could be referring to, but most believe that he's referring to a passage like Leviticus 19, verse 12. And Leviticus 19, verse 12, it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. In other words, this is an extension of do not take the, the name of the Lord in vain, but do not swear upon God or his name or the things of God. Yet, this is a little confusing because there are places in the Old Testament where you and I, when we read it, we are instructed to swear upon God's name. There are places in the Old Testament where we are instructed to make a vow to God and then to keep that vow. So what does this mean? It says, you shall not swear by my name falsely is the key word. Don't do it falsely. There are places where, because we are people who constantly break our word, there is a ceremonial aspect to making a vow. 
Wedding vows are good. We ought to make wedding vows. But wedding vows happen in a solemn ceremony where, where this is done as a, as a symbol of remembrance. So vows are good, and you should swear and make vows before God like you do in a wedding. The reason why you stand before an officiant of the church is because you're standing as two people before God. right? Because you're, because you're held accountable to God by your words. And, and where do we see this? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, the Lord says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. By His name you shall swear. So in one sense, the Old Testament is saying, Don't swear upon the name of the Lord falsely. And here in Deuteronomy, which is part of the law, it says, By His name you should swear. So basically, if you're going to swear upon God's name, or if you're going to make a solemn promise, do it honestly, do it truthfully. And I think that's what Jesus is exposing. He's exposing a corrupt system. He's not throwing all the vows out. He's saying there's a problem with how we make vows in our world. Look at Deuteronomy 23. Again, Deuteronomy is part of the Old Testament law. So you've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, we've heard it said, Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, meaning he's going to hold you accountable, and you will be guilty of sin. So this is a very strong statement. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord, don't take your entire life to fulfill it. If you say you're going to serve him, don't wait till you retire. If you commit to do something for the Lord, don't wait. But hurry up and fulfill it. Otherwise, you will be guilty of sin. But verse 22, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. So this is very clear. Don't make any vows if you can't keep it. You see where Jesus is getting at. If you can't keep your promises, just don't make the promise. And at the end of the day, he's saying, be honest. If you have limitations, be honest about your limitations. I can't do that. No, I will not be on time. I will not make it. No, I, I, I cannot be there for that event. Right? Let's just be honest. No, I don't have those skills. I don't have those skills. Right? And so let's be honest about who we are before God. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what, you've, what has passed your lips for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God, meaning no one has forced you to make any commitment to God, what you have promised with your mouth. Let me make this a little stronger. Sometimes I stand down there, and I understand the gospel, but there are certain worship songs that are I-centered. I will, I will, I will. You see me not singing it, because I know that I'm lying. I know that I can't keep it. I will never leave you, Lord. I will never forsake you, Lord. But when the songs are simply making a theological statement, like, God, you are holy, thou art worthy, then I'll sing it freely and openly. I'm not encouraging you or discouraging you from singing certain words. I'm just saying we need to be honest. We need to be honest before God because the Word of God says it's a strong saying. It's a sin. But that's also why some of our worship leaders who have sat under the expository preaching long enough are very wise about the words that they choose because songs teach the heart. Songs train the heart. And so if we are a church that's constantly singing songs that are lying to God, that reinforces kind of a shallowness to our faith, that we take God very lightly because we 
make these promises to him each week, then we walk out these doors and we live according to our ways. But we need to take God's word seriously. Jesus, Jesus in, in Matthew 5, when he talks about do not swear by heaven for it is the throne of God or, or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of a great king and do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair or white black. There are two things that he's doing here. Let me show you the first. How you understand his words comes from reading later in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 23, he takes on the religious leaders head on on this very issue of their, their vows. He reveals the ridiculous nature of how they have corrupted the system. Not only do you see in their vows dishonesty and a trivial nature, but you will see a ridiculous kind of idiocy to how they swear upon vows. Let me just give you an illustration. This is a pulpit because it's in a church. This is a pulpit because it holds the word of God. But if you take this and put this in a university classroom, it is no longer a pulpit. It is a lectern. So if I swear upon this lectern, it's meaningless. But if I say I swear upon the pulpit that stands in a sanctuary, then it is the presence of this lectern, this wooden desk in a church that makes this a sacred desk. You take this out of the church, there's nothing sacred about it. But look at the idiocy of the religious leaders. Look at what Jesus says to them. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Gold is gold. You move gold around, it's gold. It's the fact that the gold was dedicated and placed in the temple of God that made the gold meaningless, uh, meaningful. But what the Jewish leaders are saying is, oh, if I swear upon the temple, it's meaningless, but if I swear upon the gold, oh, yeah, that, 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 then you have to keep your word. Right? But if you just swear upon the temple, you can break your vow. That is ridiculous. Right? And in verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, Jesus says, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Again, they're saying, I swear upon the gift. If I swear upon the gift on the altar, then I have to keep my word. But if I simply swear upon the altar, it's meaningless, right? I mean, what's the point? It's the point that the gift is on a sacrificial altar that makes it meaningful. So, Jesus is not encouraging them to swear upon objects. Instead, he's revealing the ridiculousness of their system. Verse 20, so whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So the first thing Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 is exposing a false system. The second thing he's doing is that he's making a statement that whatever object you want to swear upon, you think that if you swear upon lesser objects that you're not making a vow to God, but you forget to realize that every object that you swear upon belongs to God. So go back to Matthew chapter 5. Don't swear by heaven, 
For it's the throne of God. You say, I swear by heaven, but I'm not swearing by God. So here's what they did. I swear by heaven. That means I could break my promise. But I swear upon God. Oh, oh that's serious. Then I got to keep my word. And Jesus is saying, look, heaven belongs to God. So you're still swearing upon God. He says, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of God. You swear by the earth, it's still binding because God created the earth. It belongs to him. You're still swearing upon God. He says, or by Jerusalem. I swear by upon that holy city. But it is the city of David, the city of God. The city of the great king refers to David and then later the son of David, Jesus Christ. Verse 36, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You know, th that's saying that you can't swear upon your own life. I swear upon my head, meaning I swear upon my own life. But we cannot determine when our hair will grow white, or whether our hair is black or not, right? or whether or not we'll have any hair left. That's all up to God. And so what Jesus is saying is that your life belongs to God. So when you say, hey, over my dead body, you know, I swear upon my, my body, well, your body belongs to God. Your head belongs to God. Your life belongs to God. And so everything belongs to God. So anything that you swear upon, I swear upon the mountains belongs to God. Right? And, and so, so we cannot say, okay, there's a different system of swearing. And if I swear upon lesser things, I'm not held accountable. And Jesus exposes this type of hypocrisy. And so that's point number one. Jesus exposes the duplicity, the hypocrisy of insincere vows. Point number two is that Jesus elevates who you are over what you vow. Jesus elevates who you are over what you vow, your character over what you say. And to understand this famous saying in verse 37, let your yes be yes and your no be no, some of your translations have it that way, you need to take the context of the opening words of verse 34. Verse 34 says, of Matthew chapter 5 of our passage, it says, do not take an oath at all. So you've heard it said, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. What is Jesus doing? He's eliminating the need for vows. He's not saying you shouldn't make vows or you can't make vows. He's saying if you have good character, your yes should be good enough. Your no should be good enough, right? So in a courtroom, do you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth? If you're trustworthy, you don't need to, I swear, right? You just say, yes, I will tell the truth. No, I will not tell the truth. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Who you are should, should make a statement. Right? You don't need a vow. That's what he's saying. he's saying. He's not saying don't take it. Right? Don't get me wrong. Some of you who go to court, don't say, hey, my pastor said I, I shouldn't take this vow. You know, you're going to be thrown into jail maybe for, for, for doing that. But that's what Jesus is saying. In a wedding ceremony, do you take so-and-so to be your wedded wife or be your wedded hu husband till death do us part? You shouldn't need to take that vow. You simply say, yes, I do. But I'm telling you, yes, take the vows. But Jesus is saying, if you're trustworthy, you don't need to make some type of formal vow. Your yes should be good enough. And your no should be good enough because you're honest that you can't keep that commitment. Being sworn into public office, you place your hand on the Bible. I solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of whatever, whatever public office to uphold the Constitution. Why do you need to put your hand on the Bible and swear? Why can't people just look at your character and say, will you do it? Yes. Okay. 
That's Jesus' point. Your membership pledge to the church. Why do you need to make a membership pledge? Do you even remember your membership pledge? It's important to make a membership pledge, but in the interview, when I ask you, will you be a faithful member, you ought to just say yes, and that should be sufficient. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. All these vows that I've given you, by example, are good vows, but what if your character was so trustworthy that you don't need to swear anymore? That's what Jesus is wanting and desiring of his kingdom disciples. He wants his disciples to be so trustworthy that their reputation speaks for itself. And this is what he means. Let what you say simply be yes and no. And, and, and check, out, check out what this says. Anything more than this comes from evil. Right? That's Jesus' point. A sincere person does not need to swear because his or her words alone are trustworthy. And if you want to somehow make up some false system, or if you lie, if you're dishonest, it is evil. And that leads us to point number three. This is a strong saying. Hear me out on this. Jesus holds people accountable for their vows. Ask Ananias and Sapphira what it was like to be struck dead by God for lying. They did not have to give everything in, in the book of Acts. They said they would, and they lied about it. They held back some of their proceeds. And that's what happened. God struck them dead. That's how seriously he takes our vows, especially vows made directly to him. And so Jesus equates dishonesty to evil. Point number three, Jesus equates dishonesty to evil. There is no shade in the God of light. There is no gray in the God of light. There is no gray area in God. If there was a gray area in God, he could renege on our salvation offer. There is none. Jesus is simply light and truth and goodness and transparency in all things, revealing his word. Right? And he equates any form of dishonesty to evil. Anything more than this, anything more than let your yes be yes and your no be no is dishonest and comes from evil. Propping up yourself on your resume, beloved, is evil. And I've done it in ministry. But I've only applied to one church all my life. No, I've applied to another church for my internship prior to this. But how do we prop ourselves up, right? There, there, there are different ways. It is evil. Let me show you in the Bible where it says it's evil. Zechariah Chapter 8, verse 17, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. The Bible refers to the devil as the father of lies, and that's why. Satan is the father of lies. And so if you are a child of Satan, by extension, you are a child of a liar and you are a liar. But the children of God must be defined by the character of God. We must be children of truthfulness. John 8, 44 makes this very clear. John 8, 44 says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. I want you to underline that. Right? Because most of you do the electronic Bible now. So, just do that electronic highlight. If you have a sacred word, then maybe, like me, I don't write in my Bible. Okay? Uh, but when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Who you are 
is more important than what you say. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so, again, Jesus' application, I want us as a church, and including myself, to take this seriously. Practically, Jesus' words would extend to being truthful on academic work. Reports. Right? When you make a report, be honest. Cite your sources. Your resume, I mentioned that. Your transcripts, beloved. Report your community service hours, young people, honestly. Right? Report your transcripts honestly. Taxes. What type of accounting or accountant do you find for yourself or your business? Do you want the ones that gives you all the loopholes? And don't argue with me that it's legal, right? Because there's, if there's gray, or do you look for an accountant that says, hey, I want to get all the benefits that are legal, so I want an advantage. I don't want my money going to the Fed. They don't use it well, but I want to be legal. I want to be honest before God, right? When you do some kind of project in your home, do you want to follow code of the city or do you want to save money? Financial accounting, Instagram photos. Be honest. If you look a certain way, just look a certain way. Okay? That's how God made you. Media profile. Media profile. Right? What do you say about yourself? What kind of image do you want to project? Our commitments. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. If you're going to be late, just say you're going to be late. If you can't do it, just say you can't do it. If you don't know how to use Microsoft Excel like me, just say you can't. And just ask someone else to do it for you if they can. Right? So there are, there are simple skills that if you load up that I can do this, I can do that, I can do that, and then you go into some type of position and job and you can't do it, then just say, I would like to learn it. I'm willing to be trained, but I don't know how to do it. Right? But our world is built around getting ahead through dishonesty, getting ahead of our fellow man, a fellow woman through this dishonesty. And Jesus is even condemning half-hearted commitments. Oh, you know, I might be able to. Oh, I think, you know, but I'm going to keep canceling on you. I'm going to flake out on you. Right? And Jesus doesn't want any flakes because Jesus did not flake out on us. Right? So contracts, business agreements. Right? We need to be honest with our word. If you're in business... Don't tell someone, hey, you know what, uh, it's going to cost you $1,200 for me to do this project for you. And then come back later and say, well, you know, it's actually $2,000 because there's this and this and this. You knew it was going to be $2,000. You knew it. So why don't you just say it? It's going to be $2,000. It's going to be $2,000. Do you take it or leave it? Right? And, and let your character speak for yourself. Let your character speak for itself. We must deliver. Here's the scary thing. Here's the scary thing. If you and I are followers of Christ, and if you and I are children of God and not children of the devil, then a good father will discipline his children. There are times in my life where God closed doors on me because I was not fully honest. There are times where in my life where if I'm trying to prop myself up, God stops me, and I get called out. I get called out, hey, you said that. Why did you say that if you didn't mean it? Oh, I was just speaking out of my emotions. Well, let your yes be yes, your no be no. You're right. You know, and, and so there are, there are conflicts that arise. There are times where I say something, and I realize that I'm wrong, and then I try to cover it up with my words. I try to talk around it, and people are like, dude, it's because you're a pastor. That's why you're trying to talk around it. I'm like, oh, man, you're right. 
You're right. You know, and, and, and so God will punish us in love. He will not send us to hell if you're a child of God, you know, when you confess your sin. But if you lie on certain things, he may not allow you to get that raise or that job, right? He can, in, in, in his best way, he doesn't want us to be children of the devil. He does not want us to reflect the ways of this world or the, or the way of Satan. So he will do whatever it takes, like a good father would, to discipline his children so that we look like him, speak like him, think like him, and feel like him. And so his discipline is divine and it's real. And sometimes it's tough love. Right? And why is he this way? I already said that Satan is the father of lies and he is the father of truth, but it's because God is his word. The reason why we can trust him is because his word reflects his character. His word flows out of him to the point where he says he is his word. That's what he says. You, you, you have my word. God doesn't just give us promise. He gives us his word in him, in his own self. Jesus Christ is an incarnation of his word. Jesus Christ is evidence of God the Father keeping his word because in his word is the embodiment of the fullness of grace and truth. Right In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When God says, you have my word, He's saying, you have me. You have my son. His word is not separate from who he is. There's no duplicity in God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. And glory is only the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If God simply gave us promises, but didn't send his son, it would just be promises. And we need to trust him because he's God. But what makes God ultimately trustworthy is that he sends himself, he sends the Son of God, he sends the second member of the triune Godhead down to earth to embody his truth and to pay for our sins, to make atonement for our sins. And so if we were just to take God's hard truth this morning, here's the big idea. The big idea this morning of Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37 is that Christ calls us to be true to our words. Why? Because dishonesty reveals an evil heart. Christ calls us to be true to our words because dishonesty reveals an evil heart. And I think all of us this morning, if we're honest, we've fallen short. We've fallen short. And I want you to see a tragic example, a true story from the Old Testament, where we don't know why God puts this kind of stuff in the Bible. I don't like this story, but I love God's word. And it's from Judges chapter 11, verses 29 to 40. It's the story of Jephthah and his vow to God. And him keeping that vow. And him not having the gospel. That's the tragedy, is that he didn't understand the gospel. Judges 11, verses 29 to 40. Let me summarize the story for you. Judges is a time of evil. Judges is a time where everyone worshipped pagan gods. And in pagan religion, child sacrifice and the sacrifice of humans was normal. Uh, Jephthah himself, called by God though, was still a man coming from the rabble. He was a rough man, a, a man who 
uh, hung out in fellowship with rough people, and that's what made him such a warrior, and somehow he had some type of faith in God. He trusted that God could fight with him and for him, and he was victorious in battle for the Lord. But Jephthah made this foolish vow to the Lord after the Spirit of the Lord was already upon him, which tells you that I don't think God wanted him to make this vow, I'm pretty clear, but he did not have to make this vow because God would already guarantee victory through him because the Spirit of the Lord was on him. But after that, Jephthah tells God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand in battle, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from defeating the Ammonites shall be to the Lord's. And he says specifically, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So that's what he's saying. He's not saying... He's not saying anything else. I'm going to figuratively dedicate someone to a life of virginity. That's not what he's saying. Okay, he's not saying, okay, I'm going to somehow uh, sacrifice an animal. He didn't say that. In fact, when you look at the original Hebrew, it's anything. It includes a human being. So, if an animal came out, he would offer that as a burnt offering. But if one of his male servants came out, he would offer up his male servant. That was how dark and evil the times were. And he didn't need to make this vow. Like, first of all, you don't bargain with God. You don't bargain with God. Okay, that's the first thing we need to understand. You don't say, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. So already he's in the wrong. Long story short, God gives him the victory because God was going to give him the victory anyway. So it's not like God honored his vow because he made the vow. God was going to give him the victory anyway. But in giving him the victory anyway, God teaches Jephthah a lesson on the importance of vows especially vows for before God. And so Jephthah leads Israel to victory over the Ammonites. And when he returns, it is tragic, the first person that comes up, before any animal, it's his daughter. His daughter comes out to greet him. So imagine that you come home from battle. So men, you come home from work. And your daughter comes out, and she comes out, and it says here, she came out with tambourines. She came out singing. She's like, Daddy, you're home. Daddy, you come back. And this is his only child. As soon as he saw his daughter, at least you know something about his character. He understands that he needs to fulfill his word to God. I don't think God would want that directly, but he, he understands he needs to kill his daughter. So he tore his clothes in despair, and he says, for for I have opened my mouth to the Lord. I cannot take back my vow. This is tragic. Because Jephthah, to his credit, he knows the law. But to the tragic reality, he did not know the gospel. That's the tragedy. The good news, he knew the law. The bad news, he didn't understand the gospel. It's a, les it's a lesson that foolish vows are the essence of a dark and corrupt world, and Jephthah kept his vow. He actually took his daughter's life. It, it says in the passage that he went through and did according to what he vowed, and when you take that literally in exegesis, then what did he vow? He vowed that he would offer it as a burnt offering. So he offered his daughter as a burnt offering. The comments about her perpetual virginity and all that, it's only to make a statement of how tragic this is. One, it mentions that this is his only child. Second, she didn't have children before he fulfilled his vow, meaning that there is no continuation or progeny to his family line. That's tragic in ancient times. Jephthah's family line is 
deplete. It's done. It's complete. I don't know what there was. I pray. I read this. I break my heart. You know, I don't understand what God would do. Uh, God, why did you let him fulfill this? I, I did the exegesis, looked at the different views. Maybe he didn't actually take his daughter's life. But you know what? To his credit, he fulfilled it. The conservative position is that he actually went through and sacrificed his daughter. Okay? And should he have done this, what do you think? What do you think he should have done? Was it right for him? Well, I'll tell you the answer. My answer is no. He should not have taken his daughter's life. First off, he bargained with God and he did not need to, to test God. And he was reflecting in his heart a works-based religion, which is, an, which is abomination to God. Secondly, God would have given him the victory, so he should have just trusted God. Secondly, though, child sacrifice was part of pagan religion, and the Old Testament prophets condemned child sacrifice. And they referred to child sacrifice as an abomination to the Lord. So two wrongs don't make a right. Yes, you've said something. You've made a, a bad vow. It was sinful. But to go through with that wrong, two wrongs don't make a right. And third... Did Jephthah know the word of God? Where was the gospel preacher? Where was the prophet who could teach the shadow of the gospel? I, my heart sank because I have my own daughter. And, and, and I know that I make false promises. And, and I say, you know, I'll never do that. Or I'll never do this again. And I fell. And, and oh, well, how sweet it would have been for a gospel preacher to arrive on the scene to tell Jephthah that, Jephthah, you know something about the law because you know that you kept, you need to keep your vow, but somehow were you like 90% of Christians that, that committed to a Bible reading plan and got bored and stopped reading it in Leviticus? Was that you? Because in Leviticus, there is the gospel in shadow. Oh, where was the expositor who would preach Leviticus chapter 5 in a Christocentric and holistic way, pointing forward to the promised Savior. Where was that gospel preacher? Where was he? I want you to see Leviticus 5, verses 4 to 6. Could someone tell Jephthah that he could have repented, that God is a God of grace and truth? Grace and truth. For if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, to do evil, or to do good. Any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, meaning he's ignorant. When he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these, and confesses the sin that he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, not his daughter, but a female lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Did he not know this? This is why the answer to the question, should Jephthah have fulfilled his vow, is no. Because the word of God, though it gives you law, it gives us gospel. And look at what is, do you see Jesus, beloved, here? Do you see Jesus? That one, you confess your sin. If you make a rash vow, how much more of a literal 
prescription do you need? If you make a rash vow, I will kill. I will offer to you good intention. Good intention. I will offer as a worship worship act to you the first thing that comes out from my house. Oh my goodness, it's my daughter. Woe is me. Woe is me because I didn't know the gospel. Woe is me because I did not have the gospel. Not because I made a false vow. Because you and I will make false vows all the time. We will. We will break the covenant of God over and over again. But woe to us, not because we sin, but because we don't have the Savior. And, and do you see it here in verse 6? What do you bring? A lamb. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all those who would believe in this world. And he is the priest who makes atonement for our sin. By God's grace, I don't know how. But Hebrews 11 includes Jephthah in the hall of faith, which means he was saved. And so all I can imagine is that somehow when it was time to offer up his daughter, if it's your own daughter, what would you do? He probably did it in the most gentle way possible. He likely didn't burn her alive. He probably somehow ended her life in the most swift and peaceful way and then offered her up and for the rest of his life, probably in lament and repentance. And God in his grace looked at Jephthah and likely said somewhere, look, your faith is imperfect, but you have faith. You're keeping your word to me. Even though this is weird and strange and unacceptable, you're trying to keep your word to me. But if you will continue to look to me and lament to me, then my son will one day come and fulfill Leviticus 5 for you, even if you don't know it. And he will be the perfecter of your faith, Jephthah. And so in Hebrews 11, Jephthah is saved. Strange, strange. But I love it how the Bible does not hide anything, does not try to put sugar on things that aren't sweet. And so here's the bigger idea. The bigger idea this morning is when we fail, when we speak words that we wish we could take back, our words will not cover up sin, but His Word became flesh to make atonement for sinners. That is the Gospel. Our words will not cover up sin. We can't talk around it. We can't say, well, this is what I really meant. This is what my intention was. Oh, I shouldn't have said it that way. Oh, I could have said it better. Our words cannot cover up our sin. But His Word became flesh to make atonement for sinners. Our words can so easily offend and then we're left with no defense. Praise be to God that Jesus Christ is our high priest in our defense. Our words offer us a weak defense, especially when we stand before God. But God's Word is the bulwark of our salvation. Beloved, praise be to God, not that you and I could guarantee that we can always keep our word, but praise be to God that God in Christ keeps his word. Praise be to God that we have a Savior. Beloved, this morning, my invitation to you is that you would be honest about your sin, that you would be honest about times where we are dishonest, that we would turn our dishonesty 
into an honest confession. And when we go before the Lord in confession, what He does with our hearts is that He produces in us a profession. Sinners who confess begin to profess a Savior. When we are honest about our confession of sin, what Jesus does to sinners is He gives us a gospel profession. And so I want you this morning, regardless of whatever songs are said, to sing with confidence that though we can't always keep our words, that we can in the name and through the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take offering and we're going to sing and if there's I statements in there, sing it with confidence. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace. We're so thankful for the gospel. We're so thankful, Lord, that someone preached the gospel to us. That when we realize that we were wrong and we were condemned and that we needed to come before you, that someone brought to us the good news that you are a God of truth, yes, but even more so, you are a God of grace and truth. And that grace and truth was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, oh, what a sinner we may be. But Lord, oh, what a Savior we have. So hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, you are strong and you are kind and your grace is powerful. So Father, will you continue to fill us with your peace. Forgive us, Lord, for where we fall short and make us more like Jesus. It's his name, in his name that we pray. Amen.